there's body cams. Everybody knows there's body cams. And the audio is being recorded, right? And it's like still, like you're, you're still doing it. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, February 8th. Today, Baratunde Thurston joins me with his thoughts on the killing of Tyree Nichols at the hands of five Memphis police officers, all of whom were black. But as Baratunde explains, Nichols' brutal death makes clear that simply putting black people into corrupt systems doesn't change the system. You'll want to hear this conversation. And later, Eric Gardner stops by to chat with Ben Landy about how AI fever is taking over Hollywood. What happens when AI can replicate Morgan Freeman's voice or digitally insert Zendaya into the next Spider-Man? We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. It's now been a month and a day since... Tyree Nichols was pulled over in Memphis by five police officers, all of them black. They chased him down, beat him for three minutes, and he was within 100 yards of his house screaming for his mom when this happened. In the months since then, there have been press conferences. (laughs) The police have been pretty forthcoming compared to other um, situations (laughs) like this. (laughs) Low bar. The video has come out. Five videos, I think, in total from different angles, including body cams. I'm joined today by Baratunde Thurston to talk about this because there are some notes from this incident and this tragedy that feel a little different, and I'm trying to get at why. First thing I want to ask you, Baratunde, what was your first reaction of this? And then how have you sort of grappled with it, and how has your mind changed about the Tyree Nichols killing in the days and weeks that followed? Like, did your mind shift at all? Did your perspective change? Um, my first response was, uh, here we go again. Mm-hmm. And I expected everything to be the same as it always seems to be. It's probably like an unarmed person made the mistake of talking back or running or not planting their face firmly into the ground repeatedly, uh, at the precise instruction, uh, of an insecure law enforcement officer. And there'll be an investigation and we'll wait for this. And so I was kind of like pre-exhausted. Hmm. I think the what got more of my attention was all of the early warning signals that were coming from the government in Memphis about we are going to release this video. It is not going to be pretty. We are going to release this video. It is not going to be pretty. Brace yourselves like psychologically, physically, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, please don't burn the city down you know, from, from mostly from others. I didn't really hear that from anyone in Memphis, but the larger news story was we know what's going to happen next. You know, we're going to have some pending wait, hand waving at uh, accountability. We'll have some very, very angry people, probably justifiably. Some of those people will themselves break more rules and, and probably property and we'll feel like nothing's different. That was the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then the evolution you know, was pretty quick after that. I think the rapid kind of firing and and charging with crimes of these officers was among the swiftest. It, it had it reminded me a little bit of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. You know, and the police chief or the DA there 
got really aggressive, didn't get a conviction, but they at least tried to signal to the public, like, I'm taking this seriously. So this felt maybe a little like that. And then the other thing was like, all the officers being black. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, is there any correlation between them being black and the swiftness of the justice and the chief being black and a woman? Like there are all these subtle shifts in the variables of a formula that I thought I knew very, very well. And the video itself on social media, one, I didn't see it. There were times in the past where I wanted to see, and now I don't. Like, I think I've seen all I need to. And there were times where people would forward these things to me and say, you have to see. And that didn't happen either. The reaction of black people in my network, in my group chats and in my social media feeds, I don't know anyone personally who's actually watched the video. And that's very, very different. There's a level of uh, self-care happening that I think is notable. Um, I'm interested to hear that um, some of your friends and people in your network just weren't interested in watching it. A, a question I do have, though, is do you think part of that is because the officers were black and they didn't want to reckon with that? Mm. Or was part of it just sort of like, I'm exhausted. I can't. No, I, I think it's exhaustion. I think the officers being black isn't new. It doesn't fit the clean mm-hmm white versus black racist narrative of like cops are white and victims of cops are black. And this is what the video looks like. But anyone who's been kind of walking around in black skin for a while does know that black cops can actually be worse. You know, they, they have, uh, as I wrote in my puck piece, citing decades of other people commenting on this, you know, from Baldwin in 55 to KRS one in 93 with his track black cop, Many of us have known that black cops are as if not more capable of brutality than their white counterparts and that it's the institution of policing that is the challenge, not just mm-hmm. the race of the police officer. So at least in, in my network, the the conversation about their blackness was really in the same breath of unsurprise and maybe like notability of the swiftness of the beginnings of what might be justice, the accountability piece. Hmm. that the the police unions were very silent for these cops. You know, in, in most of these cases, those unions are out front getting a- ahead of things, saying, nope, we... and they didn't say anything. They didn't protest. They didn't talk about these guys who stay on the payroll. They were sacrificed as quickly as these cops sacrificed Tyree, which is, you know, the plight of many you know black police officers in this country who are taking different kinds of loyalty steps and finding maybe not the same in return. So yeah, I think the lack of willingness to watch the video was 98%. I've seen all these videos. It Mm -hmm. won't change the facts. It will hurt me to watch it Mm -hmm. without any balancing benefit. Yeah. The other thing that jumped out at me is a lot of these incidents and these killings have fallen down racial lines. Not all the cops are white. Many are black, many are Hispanic. These were all black cops in their 20s and 30s. And to me, it just signaled the culture of policing and the cultural cleavage between police and the rest of the country. (laughs) Black, white, rich, poor, whatever. And it jumped out at me in the moment, again, this is audio, where the cops go back to their car. They know they have body cams on. They know they're calling stuff in. They know they're being recorded. And they're like, he went for my gun. Did you see that? He put his hand on my gun. He was high as a motherfucker. He was high. 
Like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah, I saw that. He saw grab your gun. None of the video evidence shows that Tyree was even close to reaching for anyone's gun. And like, yeah. not to leap to an act of like a Hollywood show or anything, but I watched We Own This City last year on HBO. Did you watch that? I didn't. I'm a little bit aware of it, but I never actually watched it. It's based on Baltimore Sun Reporter's expose of the Baltimore Police Department before yeah. and after Freddie Gray. And there are cops and the main bad guys played by John Bernthal, again, based on real cops. And like yeah. he would plant evidence and yep. do it in such a callous way where he would like harm somebody, steal money from someone during some kind of bust. And then completely lie <laughs> to people back at the office or like lie in the police report or whatever. And again, I don't know the motivations of these police officers, but it just reminded me of that show where it's like, yeah. you were willing to commit an act of us versus them violence. And you don't really care about the repercussions as long as you can cover your ass in the police report. It really jumped out at me. They were like, almost like, you know how... I can't think of an example in real life, but they were like bending over backwards to like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He reached for a gun. Yeah, I saw it, man. Like, no, oh and, yeah, yeah. And he reached for a gun. And like, it was a real insight into the bad behavior of a police officer. And what you're describing is culture. That's how a culture gets set. There are some cultures, and I don't mean nationally or ethnically. I just, it could be in a church reading group, right? And there's a, there's a culture of like going out of your way to be nice and listen and not talk over someone. There can be a culture of one-upmanship. There can be a culture of towing the line and actually not trying to cross it in any way. And, and what you have in a lot of these police departments is, is a gang behavior, right? It's, it's fraternal in the toxic sense. Mm -hmm. And it's cultish. And if you go against that, you're not one of us. So there's, there's internal bullying. Mm -hmm. And all this is passed down, like from older brothers with shitty behavior to younger brothers. And like, where'd you learn that from my older brother? Like that's a lot of the behavior in these police forces. And so, you know, we've got this theory well disproven at this point that, oh, if you just like add black people, it becomes just. You just add women and it becomes just. And it's like, no, we, we added Ghislaine Maxwell to Jeffrey Epstein and he became more dangerous, mm -hmm. right? He became more women and girls, I should say, were caught in his web because of her presence rather than in spite of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know her psychology. I don't know his, but there are some of these patterns. You know, we added Obama and it didn't just fix black unemployment. There are some things that are very systemic. So what the audio you're describing is uh, it's the type of gang-like behavior that this particular Memphis PD unit was constructed to take apart. Mm -hmm. and, and and instead, you know, they emulate it and they roll up on people aggressively and they're Dodge Chargers and they do hyper-aggressive stop and frisk tactics because there's no fear of repercussion. And that's the other thing, just there's body cams. Everybody knows there's body cams and the audio is being recorded, right? And it's like st still, like you're, you're still doing it. Mm -hmm. You're still doing it. So that's how deeply seated some of this culture is. And there's got to be something more deeply seated to uproot it and, and shift that culture away from violent, gang-like, cultish activity. Yeah. The last thing I want to say, and like Baratone's piece is called Thoughts and Tears for Tyree. It's on Puck. You should read it. You, you sort of paraphrase slash quote bell hooks and you say, we are overdosing on fear in America. And when I read that, 
I thought, uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. Last summer, I had back-to-back incidents where there was a mass shooter scare. And mm. people fled the theater because it turned yeah. out someone broke a pane of glass and said, there's a gun. And once you're in that moment and you see what people do when their lives are in danger, some freeze, some cry, some sprint. And I was thinking about that today because Tyree was pulled over and stopped and like they had him for a second and then he fucking ran. Yeah. And you don't know what people are going to do when they are living in fear. And then the the corresponding actions of the police officers of like once you get in a group, mm-hmm. like once you're with five people and five people start doing the same thing and you start to play off each other, in this case in a bad way. But I was just like reminded of like how fear can influence people. And it's like yeah, police need to understand that if someone freaks the fuck out, if they're pulled over, it doesn't mean they're trying to kill you. And again, this is without knowing the full facts of everything that happened, but it's like, of course he ran. His mom's house is right over there. I would fucking run, you know? And I think your your armchair analysis on this rings true to me. The way I described it in the piece, this kind of deluge of images of police violence against black folk, it's, you know, it's like watching myself get killed over and over again. And that's toxic. Like it it kills me a little bit inside and I don't want to Mm. live in that state. And the group think of it, the terror of it, you know, I would tell myself in the calm state that I am in with you right now, if I get pulled over by a police officer, I am not doing shit, right? (laughs) I am going to, you know, say whatever words might deescalate and diffuse. I am going to keep my hands visible. I'll wet my pants before I move. You know, like you go in my pocket and you get my ID. Like I want nothing. I want, I'm going to have Siri start recording things. Right. And every smart speaker mm-hmm. start, you know, transmitting everything live. But in the moment, you may not know. And I think being so close to home as he was, he's like, I just want to get home. And I know what these guys are capable of. And this unit is also known, right? They rough people up on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So this isn't an uninformed decision on his part. So those police officers, you know, need to be armed with more than weapons, right? They need to be armed with sense and thought and dare I say, a level of like mindfulness to assess the situation in some way other than how do I crush this other human being so thoroughly that there's no chance they could possibly crush me. And then the culture of silence to create a story and lie because your culture lets you get away with it. But there are other ways and there are so many examples of policing departments and sub-departments and chiefs and units and communities that are actually solving crimes and, and reducing crimes without resorting to you know violence sparked by fear. I can't wait to read that when you write it. Um, <laughs> seriously. All right, man. Thank you so much. Everyone go read Baratundi's piece on Pac, Thoughts and Tears for Tyree. Thanks for coming on, man. Always appreciate your insights. Always appreciate time with you, Peter. Have a good one. Thanks. When we come back, Eric Gardner talks to Ben Landy about how AI could take over Hollywood. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner to talk about how AI anxiety is sweeping Hollywood. Eric, I know you've been playing around with ChatGPT. What's uh, what's impressed you so far? 
Uh, you know, it's amazing. You ask a question and, you know, you're always astonished by the answer. Uh, for instance, I, uh, I asked it to compose a, a blog post in my style and I was both impressed and disappointed. <laughs> impressed because the, the fact was that the ChatGPT did a legal-themed article, which I uh, appreciated. Disappointed because it was probably what I would have produced back in uh, 11th grade. Uh, so it wasn't particularly <laughs> sophisticated, or maybe that's just its opinion of me as a writer. I don't know. I, you know, I think a lot of people are playing around with it and coming to similar conclusions. Well, in Hollywood, I know a lot of the excitement around ChatGPT is just one facet of this bigger freakout around AI. There, there are all these different models and applications that are suddenly ubiquitous. Um, you know, first everyone was obsessed with Dolly, which was creating images from text. And then you had competitors that were doing things smarter and faster with video, with audio, impersonating voices, writing songs. Um, ChatGPT can write scripts, it can write blog posts. I mean, this stuff has literally exploded exponentially. What is it that people in Hollywood are most excited about or most worried about? You know, yeah, they're, I think, excited about the artistic possibilities, the the fact this is, you know, a program that can basically assist them to maybe, you know, make their lives and work a little easier. On the other hand, <laughs> that also has consequences, too. Uh, and they're worried about, you know, being replaced by the, the bot. Uh, and I think that there are, are hard questions being raised about what it is we want the machines to do, what it is we trust studios to do on our behalves. Uh, the conversation that people really need to have is those contracts that really give studios the rights to do very broad things and you know how they're using their power because you know that is something that hasn't really been discussed a lot to date and it's coming. It's definitely going to be you know something that intense focus, I think, of talks in the next few months. Yeah. How exactly are lawyers and the guilds, I assume the unions, trying to get ahead of this stuff? Because again, it is moving so, so quickly. Are they writing new contracts? Is there new language for actors to say, like, you can't just spin up a digital version of me and plug that into a movie instead of paying me some money? Yeah. Well, every few years, the collective bargaining agreement in Hollywood expires. So the Actors Guild comes to one with the producers and the Writers Guild comes to one with the producers and the Directors Guild does the same. And, you know, the, the topic of deepfakes and AI has been on the forefront for a while, but no one ever kind of saw it as a pressing issue. There were always other issues, you know, such as the streaming economy. But now suddenly with ChatGPT and everyone's seeing just how powerful a machine it's become, suddenly this issue has really vaulted towards the, the forefront of deal talks. And I, I think it's something that we're going to see in these labor negotiations. Uh, certainly the Actors Guild, you know, uh, you know, last week they held a board meeting, they put out their position that to recreate an actor's likeness is something that, that's subject to collective bargaining. They hadn't expressed that thought before. They, you know, certainly have expressed the thought that, you know, deepfakes are wrong. They've lobbied in, in various states to crack down on non-consensual likenesses because they don't like the, the fact that, you know, someone could deepfake a porn video of a star. But what they hadn't done was to react in a way 
to say that you know this is a labor issue. This is something that that you know we need to s- settle between us and the producers and the studios, and everyone's got to come to a common agreement about what's permissible. And there are all sorts of really fascinating questions and ambiguities here. When a producer goes through a movie and needs to do reshoots, must the producer you know call back the actor for a few extra days and pay that actor, or can they just you know have the the AI do it? And if so, you know, does does the actor get paid for that? For writers, you know, you they've you know sold their scripts to Hollywood studios for years and years and years, and you know all these are on a shelf somewhere. Is it right for the studio to feed those scripts into a machine to train the AI and coming up with you know the next great Hollywood movie? You know, those questions really haven't really been settled or talked about. So you know, this is a conversation that's definitely going to be happening pretty soon. And I I would suspect that studios would fall back and say, you know, these are our rights and we have the right to do it. We're not going to, you know, give that much for it. And actors and writers and directors are going to have their own insistences that some of these issues get cleared up. Yeah, the way the generative AI actually works is so interesting to me because it is very parallel to the human artistic process. I mean, you can say an AI is trained on a data set that includes, you know, let's say, every previous Hollywood script that's been ever written to create a new script. And maybe on some level, that's ripping off these prior works. On the other hand, in some sense, exactly how we work too when we write. I mean, you, you're inspired by pre-existing works. You draw ideas from them. So it's, it's really muddy. It's really a gray area, legally speaking. Yeah, absolutely. We are all trained on what's come before. No one, you know enters the void and comes up with something like completely new. I mean, like everything is uh, in some ways inspired by what's come before and reactions against what's come before. And, you know, copyright has long struggled with that to figure out, you know, what it means to be substantially similar to something else. And, you know, what's different here is very clearly the machine is accessing other stuff. You know, say I create a song and someone, you know, accuses me of ripping off their their old song. There will be an issue in court about, you know, whether I, I actually heard their song or not. But in in this instance, you know, we can, you know, check it. We can check to see, oh yes, your Hollywood script was fed into the machine, so it's part of the system. Does that make a difference? I'm not sure because, you know, we haven't had a court case like this so far. I mean, we, we've had a couple new cases in, in terms of artists now suing. Getty, the, the photographer service, filed a lawsuit uh, on Friday. So we're beginning to, to wrestle with some of these copyright questions, but there's still a long, long way to go to, to settle what the rules are. Another funny dimension to all this is that while, you know, we've, we've talked about how AI could save studios money, potentially, let's say they're recreating an actor and dropping them into a movie instead of hiring them for a scene. There's also big financial opportunities for actors and artists, especially if you're more famous. Like you can imagine Morgan Freeman with this very, you know, this very familiar voice, basically licensing that out. Or an actor whose schedule is overbooked, they're already filming four movies a year, they're asked to do a cameo in a franchise, they could just ask to have an AI replicate their license and take some kind of fee from that instead of actually having to, to fly to Montreal and, and, and shoot on some soundstage. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, if you think about the history of Hollywood, I mean, what, what's restricted everyone has been capacity. You know, an actor only has a certain limited amount of time in his or her schedule, you know, to show up on a movie set and, and perform. But, you know, suddenly they can outsource the, the work of performance to, to a machine and, you know, just license their face and image or voice to that. So, yeah, they can do that. On the other hand, even if Morgan Freeman started, you know, licensing his voice to every Every documentary filmmaker or every animated film, I'm sure at some point we get a little bit sick of it. It would become a little less special. So I think that there there is some sort of marketplace balance there. But on the other hand, yeah, there there's a lot of ways in which the famous stars in particular can really exploit this as an opportunity for them to derive more income. And it's interesting to me because I think that on in some levels that creates some sort of tension within the artist community because some artists will benefit more than others. I don't know whether that makes you know, them move off the same page or not, um, because I think that they're all worried about exploitation. But on the other hand, some artists will drive new income from this. Others will lose work from, from it. Well, Eric, you wrote a great piece about this for Puck, which I encourage people to check out if they want to read more and understand more about this topic. But um, it, it truly is fascinating. I mean, I, I was listening to Matt Bellany on his other podcast the other day with um, Matt Panousis, who's a, a VFX executive. And they were talking about how this technology is not perfect. It's still like just on the cusp of the uncanny valley where you can tell if there's a, an AI actor that's been plugged into a scene. It's not quite there yet. And the brain sort of rebels but it's so, so close. And the technology has advanced so quickly that it's hard not to imagine these scenarios that you're describing being real in just three or four years, if not sooner. Uh, very, very real. I, my, my brother is a, a filmmaker. I asked him, you know, uh, I think a few months ago, whether if he had an opportunity to do a movie with Marlon Brando and, and James Dean, you know, would he do it? Yeah, he jumped at that, that opportunity. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, artists would very much love to experiment with, with some of this. And, you know, this stuff is coming very, very quickly. In terms of video, uh, we still have a few years to go before, you you know, we can seamlessly see some of this stuff, but in terms of audio, I mean, we're, we're already seeing it, you know, the Anthony Bourdain documentary, for instance, uh, you know, last year, which used deep fake audio for him to kind of like yep. bring him back from the dead to narrate his own story. This stuff is definitely entering the, the mainstream of what we consume. I think those in the uh, artist community are, are really struggling to figure out how it is that they're going to best use it and, and keep it in line as well. Yeah, our, our, our time here is almost up, buddy. Uh, well, Eric, I'll see you in the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.